Hello, and welcome back to Nick's Movie Corner. Here we are, the penultimate episode of 000. I can't believe it. Feels like I just started this recap, but yet here we are, penultimate episode. It's a big one. It's a doozy. Um, you know, it's where a lot of stuff really starts coming together and, and uh, moves a lot of pieces into place for the final episode of the season. I'll say... Um, sort of similar, like Game of Thrones used to do this a lot, I would say, where it's like the penultimate episode of the season is the big episode. That's where sort of like Battle of the Bastards and everything else was. Um, so I would say that this is a similar, very high octane, very, um, exciting and well-made episode of TV. So without further ado, um, let's jump right in. I have episode seven of 000 queued up. If you want to be at my exact time code, it looks like I'm 0.05 seconds in. So I'm five seconds in, but I'm hitting play right now. Um, and so right away, um, episode seven, we're back in Italy. The Italians are back. Um, if you remember uh, in you know the previous episode, episode six, um, was almost entirely focused on, uh, you know, in Mexico and uh, Manuel and, uh, you know, just building that cartel army. So right away, um, here we are back uh, with the Italians. And this is, you know, it, this is key to the whole thing because Don Mino is both, you know, the first character we saw in the series, um, but also is like the final counterpart of... Um, you know, Emma and Chris's father. And he is sort of the last remaining bastion of this of this old world um, versus, um, you know, new as represented by um, his grandson and sort of the forces within his own crime family who are trying to strike back at him, as well as, um, you know, Manuel and, and that sort of second generation of the cartel. Um, and it's worth noting, um, I wouldn't be worth my salt if I didn't take the time. So to note that, um, a very real world, uh, mafia incident occurred in, uh, Ontario, uh, sort of in this past week, or, or it might've been two weeks ago at this point, but, you know, as we know, uh, Domino, uh, this is not the Sicilian mafia. So this is, he is, this is in Calabria, Italy. And so that's Northern, uh, Italy. And so Domino is not part of La Cosa Nostra, but he is part of the Indrangheta, which is the um, Calabrian sort of uh, version of the Mafia. And so in real life in Ontario, um, there's a strong sort of Calabrian presence. And this is for, you know, a much... I would need sort of an entire podcast series to talk about the Mafia in Canada. But essentially, there's sort of an enduring... endearing. Uh, mafia figure named Fat Pat Musatino, who is much like Don Mino, um, is also a, uh, a member of the Indrangheta, his, as was his father, um, as was his grandfather, who started the Musatino crime family in Ontario, you know, in the early 1900s. But Fat Pat um, is sort of truly the last of a dying breed. He really tried to model himself after John Gotti, and he had, you know, he was in prison for eight years, but his brother was assassinated two years ago. And, and there's been multiple attempts made on, on Fat Pat's life. And he sort of drove around in a very iconic, so, sort of a giant Yukon GNC truck. 
that was fully bulletproof. Um, oh, I'm sorry. So here we go. Pause on the Fat Pat Musatino talk. So um, just here is a Stefano also sort of uh, in that classic Twitter joke. He's like, um, he's sowing and he's like, oh, damn, I, I like, you know, he's he's reaping what he sowed now. And it's like, oh, damn, I have to hate when I reap what I sow. Just I hate when I try to have my grandfather killed and then fuck that up. Um, but anyway, so the the Cartigas, who is sort of, you know, actually similar to the Musatino family, is sort of another uh, Calabrian crime family who were once ostensibly loyal to Don Mina, but are obviously sort of branching out on their own. Um, you know, have now made their move, and they obviously realized that Stefano was, um, you know, sort of playing both sides. I think, you know, more so they just realized he was sort of a dipshit, but... I think it's worth noting that, uh, you know, Stefano's being put back in, in the pigsty where, you know, the guy was originally put uh, in that very first episode. Um, so, you know, a lot of cyclical stuff, a lot of, and which I guess makes sense with shipping routes too being a huge component of this show. But worth noting that, um, you know, that life is is one big cyclical route, and, and Stefano sort of ended up exactly where he didn't want to be, which is, you know, potentially being eaten alive by pigs. So, anyway, uh, but since now we're at the uh, the opening uh, intro, I'm just I'm gonna I'm gonna use this time to sort of um, finish talking about Fat Pat. But so anyway, so Fat Pat Musatino was a very colorful uh, figure in, in, in the mafia in, in Canada who had really sort of lost all, all standing. Um, you know, he had a few people who were loyal to him, but a number of, uh, you know, people were gunning for him. And so he actually, uh, almost a year to the day of his murder, um, in the previous year had ended up in the hospital after a previous failed assassination attempt. Um, and the long and the short of it is, is that in the late nineties, there was two sort of families vying for power in Ontario. There's the Musatino family and then this other crime family. And essentially, Fat Pat and his brother had the, the patriarch of that family killed. And then they made a deal with the Rizzuto family um, in, in uh, Montreal, who were Sicilian. They were not Calabrian, but they were sort of the powerhouse at the time. And, and again, I, needed, I would need an entire podcast series to really get into Vito Rizzuto and, and sort of, you know, how the Rizzuto family for a time was considered the sort of unofficial sixth mafia family. You know how there's five families. Well, they're considered the sixth. But so anyway, the Musatinos backed like the wrong horse, essentially. They went against their, their own kind. They went, they, they, you know, it was a huge insult to all the other Calabrian sort of crime families in, in the area that they would back the Sicilians and not their fellow Calabrians. And, and then essentially... Rizzuto himself ended up going to jail, and both Fat Pat and his brother ended up going to prison for about eight years. And essentially, they got out um, a few years ago, and, and Rizzuto was also killed. And so they lost all power, but, you know, ostensibly, Fat Pat was still driving around Ontario like he owned the place. And this was only a matter of time. I mean, I think, um, you know, I. Uh, I had even read in one of um, the obituaries sort of about him that one of the, the the detectives in Ontario who had just been sort of interfacing with Fat Pat for years was like, this was always going to end with him getting killed. And, and he knew that, and, and the cops knew that. So 
you know, live fast, die die young. I mean, I guess he was in his his late fifties, but so anyway, I'm gonna get back to talking about zero zero zero. But um, you know, don't forget that that Canada is again just to tie. I guess to tie this back into zero zero zero, that Canada is one of the the largest ports. I actually, I believe it is the largest port. The port of Montreal is the largest port in North America. It's where a majority of illicit goods comes into this country. Um, there's obviously the Miami port, which is in America, but it's the port of Montreal is like the spot of entry. And so any any place where there's going to be an important port or port of entry, there's going to be organized crime. And so anyway, that's a that's a huge tangent from this episode itself, but worth looking into if you like any of these commentaries, if you like this show you like any of my crazy tweets about organized crime i encourage you to sort of google fat pat musatino look into him he's a he's a fairly entertaining guy um and also then to look into nicholas rizzuto and and, and uh vito rizzuto and, and the rizzuto family because it's all super interesting so anyway back uh back to the episode um so obviously this is uh this is uh stefano's wife um, and, and, and their kid. And, and so this is, she's, a uh, you know, she's trying essentially doing all she can to save Stefano's life. And so, and, and, and I like this too. I, I like how, so this is, um, this is clearly some special, sort of worst-case scenario thing that, that he had taught his wife to do, you know, to go to that woman and give her that card. And, and I love stuff like that that involves, um, you know, unspoken stuff that we, the audience, aren't privy to. Like, we don't we don't know what that card is, but we have the wherewithal to put together, you know. Sort of it was an emergency thing that he was like, don't ask any questions. If I ever get snatched or something like that, you bring this this woman, she'll take care of it. And especially in this episode, which is so, um, you know, Ital- Italy-specific, um, I just want to shout out uh, Adriano Shiramita, who, I, and, and again, I apologies to him for how I pronounce it, but he's who plays Don Mino, and I, and I think he gives a really um, spectacular performance throughout the series. I really um, should look into other things that he uh that he was in because i really love his work in this and i find him a very compelling presence but anyway oh yeah so here's the card that stefano's wife um just uh just gave that old woman so this shows too you know that this is like this is how guys like domino actually do manage to evade police capture for 40 plus years because one like everyone in a village is sort of in on it and, and two you know it's all of these opaque sort of um rituals and cards and messages that you know it's it is interesting one of the things that people who worked in sort of intelligence said post 9 11 was that the reason why it was so hard for us as americans to defeat sort of al-qaeda and then the various other extremist groups that that have popped up in the middle east since then is that they realized that the only way they could beat sort of a, a mighty sort of military industrial complex like america was to totally retreat to the stone age and it's like, how do you avoid wiretaps? Well, you just don't use a phone. Um, how do you avoid drones? You live in caves. And so similarly, um, the Italian mafia 
both the Sicilians and the Calabrians, the, the Andrangheta, both um, sort of live by that way um, themselves. You know, that is how these sort of older dawns um, have been able to uh, survive. And I think, too, it is also important that, um, in a way, so this is Domino's great-grandson, but in a way, this is like, we understand, even if he doesn't, and even if Stefano's wife doesn't necessarily, that, like, this kid is now the most important person to Don Mino, because, um, as we remember in earlier episodes, Don Mino had to kill his own son, Stefano's father, for being a shithead, more or less, and, well, he didn't, Don Mino didn't, you know, he tried to do better with Stefano, but the, as, as we can see, that, that didn't work out too well itself, so, who knows, maybe, maybe, you know, third time's the charm of the great-grandson. This shot of uh, Don Mino and sort of one of his right-hand hand men in, in Dusk is a beautiful, very Michael Mann-esque shot. It's unbelievable, too, the amount of... Um, tension that, that that can be created just from nothing but the previous actions of characters so in what I mean by that is you know this this is tense it's like ostensibly our, our understanding right is that um Lucia Stefano's wife and, and his son are, are very safe here and, and I believe they are but we just know these characters are so violent and have no problem sort of going after families or whatever that we don't really know it's like there's a very um, fine line between uh, hostage and uh, and and captured, and so as we see here, you know, I was wrong. I hand up. I totally forgot where this is going. I thought this was a, uh, I thought this was Don Mino's um, man. I I couldn't remember, but uh, but essentially, yeah. So this is this is the people who have tried to make their move on a. Uh, on Don Mino, and, and they're sort of now revealed, it's like, Stefano has, like, now become a pawn, we, we thought he was perhaps one of, an antagonist of sorts, but he's just a pawn, um, but so these guys now have, uh, have crossed the Ru the Rubicon, if you will, um, in the sense that they've now taken Don Mino's grandson, Domenico, great-grandson, and so, uh, you know, this is, this is their, uh, this is their big move, um, I think that they, they were they were aware ahead of time that they weren't going to get too many, you know, that, that they weren't going to get too many second chances. But once you involve a man's great grandson too, you know, um, you know that they mean business. I think there's a lot of really great um, night work in this episode. Um, the cinematographers just do, throughout the series, do a wonderful job, um, you know, shooting in low light. Um, and so then, of course, you know, here there, he, Stefano doesn't even realize that Lu Lucia is like a mile away, 50 yards away. Um, and so, uh. Yeah, I mean, this is just brutal. So they, so, you know, he's a, so this guy's a total scumbag, obviously, which we knew, and so now they're uh, listening to uh, 
and just beat his wife over the phone. And so essentially now they're, they're, they're using this to motivate him to stop, um, you know, the Linwoods, obviously, to stop the shipment. Um, though Stefano's been pretty bad at almost every other task he's been assigned to do in this show, so good luck stopping the cargo. Um, but listen, if anyone, anyone in this same scenario would do the same thing. Brutal. Poor kid. Oh, has and it's funny because I've in the in the last few weeks just like for my own blood pressure and just to like be happier, uh, I've started primarily only following like farm animal accounts on Instagram, so like farm animal sanctuaries and stuff like that. And they just post pictures of like pigs and and ducks and goats and stuff every day, and um. You know, they, uh, it's just happy. They're just nice-looking barn animals. But I'll tell you, 000 has a way of making just some nice old hogs look very, very ominous. And then, of course, this guy is, um, I forget his name, but he, if you remember Don Mino and Stefano, what they're talking about is they they went to his house. Um, yeah, the Belantes. They, uh, they went to his house, um, sort of in that night when they were moving around and, um, and, you know, big ball guy ended up getting clipped and Stefano ended up shooting himself in the shoulder. Um, but so those people, uh, those were the people who were like, we want, they like asked him, you know, permission to kill like the, the girlfriend or something of someone who's, I forget, but it was essentially, you know. And, and so they've now betrayed Don, you know, but that's, you know, in a way, um, the show's way of, uh, of establishing yet again, the, the difference in, um, you know, the old generation represented by Don Mino, and then obviously their father, who's sort of like very limply apologizing to Lucia for his son's actions, um, who are again, sort of beating women and or killing kids and stuff versus his dipshit moron sons who, have absolutely no problem with that type of extreme violence. I don't know, and, and so Stefano, um, and, uh, and I can't remember that, I, for the life of me, I just forget his name, but you know who I mean, like Stefano and, and the bad guy, uh, are in Casablanca, and I was just thinking, like, I don't know how long of a flight that is. I bet that's pretty close to, to Calabria. I'm going to have to Google Maps that. But it would be really funny if it was like, if there's an entire episode that was just them in real time trying to go through airport security and then just sitting silently side by side to each other on like a 12-hour plane ride to Casablanca. It's a heck of a shiner that they've got on Stefano's uh, face. so cool how the Linwoods just have fixers everywhere. What a cool job. To be clear, not saying that the cocaine smuggling is a cool job. The being a weird political fixer, cool job. Because that just means you know people, essentially, right? Uh, 
And it's funny, too, because, like, every major corporation in the world, and I'm talking legitimate corporations, also employs, like, fixers in these countries who are usually, like, the same fixers who do get used by the, by the we'll call them black market corporations. <laughs> but, uh, you know, again, that's one of those things that I think this uh, this show does so well is that, like, it doesn't matter sort of what business you're in. Um, they all, you know, if, if you need to keep product moving, whether that product is, in this case, cocaine or, like, Coca-Cola or luxury cars or whatever, it takes a lot of greasing of the palms, a lot of glad-handing, and just knowing the right people. That's why I love that episode so much in uh, Djibouti, um, where... Uh, I'm sorry, it's not Djibouti, it's Senegal. But essentially, where they just like, it's almost like a gag, like a, like a sight gag, where they just have to keep working their way up their chain of various government officials in, in, in their sort of futile attempt to get their shipment uh, released from the port. It is funny, and in, in, in a way I think it is intentional, but it, but it is hysterical how, like, Stefano really is bad at being menacing. Like, he just tried to, and, and of course this girl is very scared, I mean, she's just like some poor woman alone surrounded by just, like, insane Italian men. But also, too, it's like, within the removed context of, like, us as the viewer, like, we just know that Stefano's, like, more or less just, like, an impotent character. This guy too, the the sort of side character, or like the like the the mafia guy in Casablanca or whatever, th who they've linked up with, is just like such a perfect, um, like European gangster looking guy, like sort of balding, big beard, um, just a, I can smell how much cologne he's wearing from here. And I think, I'm not 100%, but I'm pretty sure uh, that this is, we're already at the the moment where our, our famous patented slow-mo, um, where we're going to time shift and see uh, see the other side of, uh, of, of how we got here from, uh, from, I believe, Chris's perspective. Yep, here we go. Wow, savor this, everybody, because remember, this is the penultimate episode, and this still hasn't been renewed for a second season. And I frankly don't think it's going to be renewed um, just because it costs so much money. Um, who knows, maybe maybe I'll single-handedly get it renewed through these, uh, through these sort of live commentaries. But anyway, savor, savor this, uh, this, this beautiful, beautiful moment, this penultimate moment. Um, and so we've now, for almost the last time, made that beautiful uh, transition, and then uh, we'll we'll eventually uh, link back up at that moment. But first, let's see how how Chris got there, and wow, an, an, another absolutely incredible fit um, by Chris. Um, 
that tie-dye t-shirt is 10 out of 10. Seriously, whoever dressed uh, Dane DeHaan in this show, the stylist is just, the, or the costuming department deserves an award. Just absolutely knocked it out of the park. And boy, how satisfying to see the, the product get unloaded finally. Feels good. It's like, man, even I'm excited. Andrea Riceborough has a incredible and I and I now I'm beating a, a you know, a dead horse, but she her face really does have an unbelievable way of conveying like that she's tired. <laughs> like, you know how some um, Hollywood actresses, like no matter what they do, you don't buy that they're actually tired because they're a famous person who has had it pretty easy. You know, like the bags under most actresses' eyes, you just don't buy. Whereas with Andrew Riceborough, it's like, I look at that woman, I feel the weight of the world on her shoulders, and that's, you know, to her credit. She is, I guess this is just a long way of saying she's a phenomenal actress. Um, but there's just something about, like, the bags under her eyes um, that is just, like, and, and the wrinkles around her mouth, you know, it's just, um, she conveys a very authentic experience um she is very effortless in my opinion when it comes to um getting you to buy into her as this character and i'm sure that's also helpful because while she has a very distinct look i wouldn't say she's mega famous i mean if you're listening to this you know who andrew riceborough is if you're on film twitter you know who she is the average person and if you said that name to them my guess is they would have no idea who she is so um, I think that's why she's able to take on so many interesting roles and sort of be so chameleon-like is because, um, you know, it's not like, like Jennifer Aniston could never have this role because the issue would be, and, and the issue for her with most roles, right, is no matter what she does, you're looking at her and you're saying, well, that's just Jennifer Aniston. Whereas with, you know, Andrew Riceborough, it's like, I see Emma Linwood. Um, when I look at her in this show with this haircut, um, you know, with her action. So I don't know. I'm getting like nostalgic, I guess, because we're, we're nearing the end of this season and, and you really do grow to, uh, to care a lot about these characters. I think it's, um, it really speaks to the entire production from the actors and actresses themselves to the direction of the writing. I mean, these are very fully formed, I think very lived in authentic people and we watch them go through so much and experience so many um you know insane circumstances in order to try and pull this off that we really feel for them and and i think that's why too um that that moments like this where chris is just like in so much agonizing pain due to what we know to be his fatal condition um that that we buy it and feel for that and, and that's a combination of both Dane DeHaan's excellent work um, but also I think the show does a really good job of slowly layering in 
this disease and also the, the psychological, not just the physical impact, but the psychological impact that such a disease has on these specific characters. Um, I think this is a really nice moment too. Um, I've spoken about this before, you know, before obviously, um, but uh, I, I I do think Dane Don and, and Andrew Riceboro have have phenomenal chemistry in the show, and I think it would be cool to see them work together again in the future. Um, but that was just really strong um, casting, I'm sure. And I'm sure, you know, with especially with brother and sister, there's a lot of, you know, sort of chemistry reads, as they call them in Hollywood, where it's not so much reading the material for the show as it is to see if you buy an authentic relationship between these people. And you really do. I mean, it feels so weird to me that, that more people didn't connect with the show. I think through no fault of, of Amazon's own, they had trouble selling it um, just because I think people either looked at it and saw a Sicario ripoff or a Narcos ripoff. And though this certainly has elements of both, I think it's very much its own thing. And also I think it it elevates some of those things as well. Like I, I, I think this is the far superior show to Narcos. Um, and I love Narcos. Um but I, I think, you know, I for whatever reason, Amazon had a hard time selling this. And, and honestly, who knows? I don't have access to their internal numbers. So maybe I'm full of shit. Um, but because uh, maybe a ton of people watch this. But I feel like if more people watch this, if this um, came out at a time when there weren't 18 different streaming services when this and this just played on like HBO or something, I think a lot of people, more people will be talking about this and, and you'd be hearing a lot more sort of awards chatter for almost everyone in this show, but particularly for Andrew Riceboro and then Dane DeHaan. Um, you know, I, I, don't, I don't watch a ton of TV, but I can't imagine um, that there's too many other, that there's been too many other performances this past year to, to sort of rival the work that they do in, in this show. Oh, this is nice too that I forgot about this so that he, uh, that Chris is, goes on a nice date with Amina, um, which I guess makes it that much more crushing, um, when, you know, she ends up being used to uh, kick in the door on, on Chris, as we know. But it's nice. He gets to live a little. And again, I, I haven't really spoken much on Casablanca, but... Like, this is so cool. I mean, besides the literal movie Casablanca, one, I can't think of a, a, another movie or TV series, really, that takes place here. Um, and the only one that I really can, I guess, would be John Wick 3, but that doesn't actually take place in Casablanca. That's like, you know, that takes place in the John Wick version of Casablanca. Um, I think this is very cool how this is a real authentic look at Casablanca, and, and um, it's cool to sort of wrap your head around it as a, um, you know, 
and be like, oh wait, this is like a real Casablanca is like a real place. Um, that isn't just like in black and white with Humphrey Bogart. Um, so, uh, so I just, again, I think it's really cool that they actually, the production went to Casablanca, shot there and got this, a very cool look at a place that is not often, that is known all over the world by name, but is very often actually portrayed, um, in any sort of show or, or, or film. So I think, again, great job by 000 actually like going to someplace really interesting um, and showing us as viewers something um, that we don't get to normally see. And I'm also talking over a very cute um, sort of, it's not a meat cute per se, but I, I think Dane DeHaan and, and this girl who, or woman I should say, who is, let me see, Nabia Akari, Nabia Akari, who plays Amina, um, they have very good chemistry themselves, um, and it's very cute, uh, is, is, that's like the only way to describe it, it is weird to describe things as cute, but it is a very cute, um, sort of scene, and, uh, or sequence and, and relationship between them. It's an insane shot of this port. And you wonder too, I mean, this is such a, that's like a wide shot. Like my guess is they filmed that in, you know, very clandestine that the guys walking through the street and stuff didn't even realize they were filming uh, a show. Another great outfit on Chris, too. I'm going to have to, when I finish, when we finish this these commentaries and watch-throughs, I'm going to have to go through episode by episode and rank all of Dane DeHaan's outfits throughout the series, I think. Also think this is a nice twist um, that the whole show sort of... It, has been about obviously through the Emma characters how in a more traditional narrative it would be Chris as as the male who's sort of running the show on this enterprise but you know it's it's like clearly it's like the women who keep this world running uh type of thing which is which is very funny and interesting and so it's like you know Emma is obviously the heir apparent to the Linwood um sort of fortune if you want to call it or, or, or cartel you know however you want to define their family and then you know here in this important moment of you know getting sort of their shipment through and stuff like that is this other woman um you know it's not chris in the room making the deal with the official he is quite literally um left to stand outside and peer in through the window um at this very important transaction involving his family Andrew Riceboro, hello. Um, not to, uh, yeah, not to get the horny duck, but hello. Great outfit. Chris, of course, has a, has a good outfit too, but 
Drew Riceboro, again, hello. Um, I also like his weird, uh, his man pony. His, his, like, weird man bum thing that he does. It would be epic if Chris just, if Daynam was just rocking, like, the top knot. And then you found out that it wasn't even, that, like, the director was begging him to be like, please, can you do any other hairstyle besides the top knot? And him just being like, no, I'm doing the top knot. It's a really cool restaurant too with the waves uh, out back. And here is the patented sort of like refing moment uh, of the episode, the Nicholas winning refing moment in this weird sort of nightclub where uh, <laughs> Emma's just basking in the moment uh, by herself which is the move I would do too because nightclubs like this are a nightmare to me but she's mainly doing it for Chris because she knows that you know she obviously knows that his uh, disease is progressing very quickly um and so uh so this is important to her for him to have this this moment with Amina And this is sort of, um, in a way, I think of like Claire Denis too, which I, I don't want to give the show too much credit because Claire Denis is obviously one of the great artists and directors of our time. But this, um, you know, I can't help as, as Emma is just sort of like dancing and, and Chris and just giving herself over to the music, right? It's, it's a very, um, it reminds me sort of of the ending of Beau Travai, which is in a way possibly my favorite movie ending ever where... Um, you know, it's really not a spoiler to say that it, that it concludes with the great Dennis Levant, who, who stars in it, sort of giving himself fully over um, to, uh, not to use a fancy, dumbass college word, but the jouissance of the moment, um, and just uh, and dancing to the great uh, 90s Corona sort of um, dance song, uh, Rhythm of the Night, um, and it's just this beautiful moment where he's just like, he's finally alive for the first time in the movie as he dances uh, to this song. And so I think similar, you know, this moment of, of Chris with this girl is like, you know, he, he, he said at the dinner before and as we saw, you know, I've never actually, I've never been in love. Um, and so, you know, this is in a way, this is like the first time and, and possibly the last time that Chris is ever going to get to feel alive, really, truly alive. Um, and so, yeah, I think this is just, I think this is a really cool moment, and, and I think he and, and Amina have incredible chemistry, um, and I think it's a very, it's like a very well-earned, uh, moment, too, it's, we, we've seen Chris literally move, like, heaven and earth to, to get here, and to live up to his father's shadow, and, 
and yeah, so it's just one of those, I think, I, I really think it's in a way, it's it's sort of like a beautiful organic moment. I, I know it's sort of, some someone could push back, rightfully so, and say, well, it's just sort of like wish fulfillment that, of course, like their fixer in Casablanca has like a young, single um, daughter who just happens to find Dane DeHaan irresistible. Um, but I choose to view it as a nice moment and a, and a well-earned moment, and, and that's that. And if you disagree, that's that's fine. So, but um, and then I think and I and I think that this uh, and then I think this meltdown, this moment, um, is what makes it truly earned because he immediately starts breaking down, right? Because it's like. And, and this poor girl, Amina, has no idea what's going on, but but it's like, you know, he's coming to grips with now that, that he just had this, arguably the greatest night of his life, this incredible moment where he where he knew what it meant to feel alive more than anything else, and, and he knows that it's all sort of like an illusion. And, and, and he had sort of hoped to, uh, you know, at the beginning of the series, right, when he's at sort of the, the, the self-help group for other people with this disease, he was sort of trying to be very... Um, like a monk almost, right, is, you know, he knew he was going to die, and so he's like, he just shut himself off from everything, from love, from like life, from living experiences, because his rationale, right, of course, was that if, um, you know, if I never actually experience something, then I can't, I can't feel the pain of, of losing it. But so, but he couldn't help himself, and, and nor should he have, by the way, that's just like, you got to, um, you have to live your life, especially with a disease like this. But, um, you know, it's, so it makes total sense that he would have this meltdown because he's like, it's not fair. Um, and and now that he's sort of tasted this, this uh, not to be too great, I wasn't trying to do that in a gross way, tasted in, uh, in the metaphorical sense, like what it means to like live a normal life, to have love, to have human connection. And he knows it's going to get snatched away from him. And there's literally nothing he can do you know, it's brutal. Um, and I think, again, to Dane DeHaan's credit, I think he does a really good job selling it. Um, and I'm sure, I'm sure he did a lot of research into, into this disease too, because I think the, um, like all these sort of ticks he does aren't, again, they feel authentic. I guess it would depend on, I would need to hear from someone who actually suffers this disease, but it doesn't feel like, uh, like, for instance, I watched Motherless Brooklyn last night, which I don't recommend because it's like two and a half hours of Edward Norton giving himself auto-fellatio. Um, but on top of that, he uh, he just gives like an insane performance where I guess the, the character has Tourette's, but it's just like a total, just like a bizarre performance by Edward Norton where it's just like tick after tick after him just, he just does way too much. He does way too much, and so... I think Dane DeHaan in, in this actually gives a very balanced um, counter-performance to that of also someone suffering um, from a from a disease that they can't do anything about, um, but but sort of uh, conveys it in a much more uh, understated way. And I think, um, 
like Emma, you know, as on display here, they have a very tender relationship too. I mean, she really does care about him and, and love him and knows that they only have each other. Um, it's phenomenal, phenomenal delivery by Dan Don. Just, what's the matter? I'm dying. That's the problem. And in a way, too, it's like you could you could argue that um, a terminal disease is um, I I don't feel this way, but I guess you could say, well, you know, a terminal disease is sort of like a cheat in terms of screenwriting because it allows you to create a character with like no fear, right, or or who's superhuman or whatever, because like the stakes are already someone who's willing to do anything because. Um, they know they're going to die anyway is sort of a, a cheat, you know, when it comes to defining a, a character or could be seen that way. Um, but I, again, I think it's huge credit to Dan DeHaan and, and, and the performance he gives and very quiet, um, very understated performance um, that, it do, that it doesn't feel like a cheat at all, that it feels very organic. And again, I mean, I really wasn't a Dan DeHaan fan. I don't know. Yeah, well, I shouldn't say that. I'm sure there there is a, a contingent of Dahan heads or whatever, but I mean, it's not like I had never been very impressed by him as an actor. I think he was good in um, a Cure for Wellness, which is that batshit insane Gore Verbinski sort of horror movie, which I do recommend, but it is totally fucking insane. Um, but he gives a good lead performance in that, but. Um, I think this is this is his masterwork for sure, at least so far in his career. Like this is so clearly a character that he was designed to play, um, and that he just got to. Um, he just understood, you know, how to get inside Chris's head. And now I really I can't envision any other actor playing the role of of Chris either, just because Dahan does such good work. Andrew Ricebro, shout out, good crying actress too. It's a heck of a job with the single teardrop. Not easy, not easy. I don't care if you're a pro. It's not easy to get the single teardrop. And you know what? She probably had to do that a couple times too. So credit to her. And here we go. A sight I think we all, including Emma, never thought we would see is uh, the shipment finally getting loaded uh, on uh, onto the boat. As we see too with as as is you know clear as day, the tremors have just gotten horribly worse. Um, oh and here we go. Here is the knock. So uh, we've finally made it back to uh, to the moment of the of the handoff, and now we're just going to see how the rest of this penultimate episode plays out. Yeah, ow. Yeah, I don't. Yeah, I agree with Dan DeHaan. Just ow, man. What the fuck? Come on. 
Is that really necessary? And it's so funny, too, because it's like Stefano and Chris, in a way, it's like meeting their doppelgangers, right? They even have similar hairstyles, and it, they're sort of like the, the fuck-up sons of the mix. Um, and so this is huge to sort of have them, like, meet once again um, after they obviously made a, the first time they met um, was obviously back in New Orleans shortly after... Um, Gabriel Byrne, R.I.P.'s uh, funeral. This seems great too. I, this is like I think this is another good example of how the show mines like a lot of comedy out of very dark situations, um, which is obviously Chris being taken hostage by like the tr the villains of this series and being like made to, uh, and he's ostensibly taking them to the cargo, and it's like. Well, we're watching the cargo get loaded onto this ship, so Lord knows where Chris is leading them. Um, but uh, but uh, but I like too how the the other guys. Stefano's the only one who speaks any English, so I, I like this running gag of how they're like constantly concerned if he's giving them like the right directions or not. You're beleft where? He's just like, who's on first? It's like, what a dickhead. Stefano's literally king dickhead. It's unbelievable. I remember the first time watching this, I was thinking to myself, like, Chris, how are you going to wriggle yourself out of this one, brother? And he's done it a few times. It's like, you might laugh, but it's like, he's wriggled out of it's that incredible bronze hammer tweet, like, oh, I wonder how old Donald, there's like no way like Donald Trump's going to be able to wriggle out of this one. And then it's, you know, Donald Trump easily wriggles out of it. Just, oh, well, nevertheless, you know, so... Here I am saying, like, you know, wonder how Chris is going to wriggle out of this one. Just, ah, well, nevertheless. But so there we go. Um, Emma and, and us, the viewer, we have finally watched the shipment being put on the tanker to finally get to Italy. Um, so Chris is just bringing them to the empty warehouse. Um, there ain't no shipment to be found here. This is an epic wide shot, too, of just the single take of them watching them cold clock that poor security guard. Just come on, man. Like, do you really have to hit that dude with a rock? That dude probably makes, like, I, don't, I can't even imagine what minimum wage is in Casablanca. And it's funny, too, because Chris in this moment is obviously just sort of like, you know, like, he just doesn't really give a fuck. Because he's like, dude, I'm, I'm tremoring all over the damn place. Like, 
he's a man who uh he's got very little to lose uh to put it to put it that way Yeah, I mean, it's just like, he's like, I don't know, it's like, you know, you can clear, it's funny because Dean DeHaan is doing a good job of clearly trying to, like, formulate, like, an idea or, or just, like, something, he's like, I don't know, I guess it's over there, and it's like, well, he's finally just like, well, shit. <laughs> ain't, ain't too much left to do at this point. And the whole time I watched this the first time, I'm like, come on, Emma, like, come busting through with somebody. Where's the cavalry? And it's like, and this is awful, too, and, and this is, uh, and quite frankly, I didn't, I wasn't even thinking of it when I made the allusion at the time to Game of Thrones, but, you know, much like Game of Thrones, this is a series that is not afraid to hurt or kill characters we've we've uh, grown very accustomed to and, and to love and care about and and it does it in a very brutal and unflinching way because at the end of the day this is you know this show is about the illicit cocaine trade involving multiple organized crime families and groups so people people are going to get hurt and people are going to get killed And and it wouldn't be and it wouldn't be authentic if they didn't do that. I mean, it's like you know, people will get upset when when guys will get whacked out in The Sopranos or whatever, and it's like, well, it's a show about the mob, so occasionally somebody's going to have to get hurt pretty bad, and and so this is brutal too. And there's obviously some sense of you know, Stefano's just beating the ever living Christ out of him, which is tough to watch, anyways. But uh, it's because we love Dane DeHaan and, and and we love Chris, but. But, uh, you know, it's a mix of um, frustration, right? Because in Stefano's head, he's trying to save his wife and child at this point. He doesn't really care about anything else. And also, he's still trying to prove his worth to these other guys so they don't kill him. And it's just like, it's brutal. It's brutal. So, um So unfortunately, um, much to my disappointment, um, much to my disappointment when I first watched this, it ain't no cavalry coming, right? So, and uh, and this is we're in the end game now. You know, it's this is the bottom line is the shipment's gone, and so they're telling Stefano he has two choices. Either he finds his grandfather, Domino, and kills him, or they're going to kill his wife, his son, and him. So, that's that. But uh, much like, obviously the body count isn't as high as, uh, as the Red Wedding or, or something like that, but unfortunately, 
uh, you know, that uh, that would seem to be it for for our friend Chris. So pour one out um, for Chris Linwood. He uh, he went out like an absolute boss. Um, not that getting beaten to death is a good thing, but uh, in fact, it's quite bad as as we see. But he just didn't, you know what, he went out in a way that he felt he had dignity with and was just like a badass. So that, uh, that is, that's that. That is episode seven of 000 Family. That is the penultimate episode. And so the next time we do a, uh, a Nick's Movie Corner commentary for 000, it will be for the final episode. So anyway, thank you for listening along as always. Take it easy, and until next time, everybody stay safe.